This is our second session on Colossians 1, 19-20. For God was pleased for all the fullness of God to dwell in Christ. And through him, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. A few things left over from last time, and then we're going to look at all things here and what the reconciliation might mean or the making peace might mean of everything on earth and in heaven. Father, as we tackle this, I think, difficult text in some ways, and yet spectacularly encouraging and glorious text in other ways, we need your illumination and your humility in our hearts. So I pray that you'd come and by your Spirit give us what we need to understand and to to worship here. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't say anything last time about this word for here, and yet I think it's crucial that we notice that just before he said all things were created through him and for him, so everything was created for Christ. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. And so when this next unit begins with because, what it's saying is that God was pleased for all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God to dwell in Christ is the ground for why all things are created for him and why he's before all things and why all things hold together in him, why he's the head in the beginning and why, to sum it up, he's preeminent in everything. And the bottom line argument is he's God. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Because God was pleased for all the fullness of God to dwell in Christ. And of course, then, all things would be made for him, and he would be preeminent in all things. And one more thing on verse 19. When it says, God was pleased for the fullness of God to dwell in Christ, there's no implication here that somehow God, in a single-handed, lopsided, coercive way caused the Son to be fully divine, as though the Son had no pleasure in having all the fullness of God dwell in him. That would be an absurd inference, and yet since it stresses that God was pleased for the fullness of God to dwell in Christ, I just want to say it was also highly pleasing for the eternal Son that it be so. In other words, from eternity, this fullness has been resident in the Son at the good pleasure of the Father and the Son. Now, here's the problem in verse 20, two problems. And through him, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself God's going to reconcile through Christ to himself 
all things. Now, some, I commented last time, have taken that to mean universalism, meaning everybody, including the devil and all the demons, will be saved in the end. They will be reconciled to God by the blood, made, made peace by the blood. So the blood will reconcile not only repentant sinners, but uh, Satan as well. There won't be any hell. There won't be any eternal wrath. Here's the problem with that. There are just so many passages in the New Testament that say there is no such thing as an eternal future without the punishment of the wicked. Use Colossians 3, 5, just to stay close in the book. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Wrath is coming on sin, not reconciliation on sinners that are impenitent. Wrath is coming. How long will that wrath be? Second Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, not temporary, not as if hell could last a thousand years and then the hell would be burned out of people and they would all be saved in the end by the blood of Jesus. This punishment is called eternal in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Similarly, Jesus had already set the stage for that. These will go away after the parable sheep and the goats. These, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment and the eternality of the punishment is parallel with the eternality of life, but the righteous into eternal life. So as this eternal and this eternal are parallel, therefore if life is eternal, punishment is eternal. Same thing in Revelation 14.11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's the strongest expression of eternity in the Bible. You can't choose words in Greek any more strong for eternity than the way John piled up the words behind this English phrase, forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. There is an eternal punishment. Therefore, I do not believe Paul means for us to say, or means for us to think here, that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things in the sense that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no hell, there will be no punishment. Well, then what does it mean? And let's stir in the second question. He says, this is true, whether things are on earth or whether things are in heaven. The all things here will include things on earth and things in heaven, which I think means that in the age to come, when God has done the peacemaking work, the reconciling work by the blood of Christ, what will be left in the new heavens and the new earth is nothing that is unreconciled to God. Not because all have been reconciled to God and there's no hell, but because when he casts the impenitent and the devils out, they go into outer darkness. Here's the phrase here in Matthew. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a description of the eternal punishment that the impenitent, who have stiff-armed God's revelation and his grace, either general revelation or specific gospel revelation, that's where they go. They go outside of the new heavens and the new earth. So when Paul speaks of a, an earth and a heaven where everything is reconciled, he means all the evils have been excluded from earth and from heaven. So all things will be reconciled in heaven, all things will be reconciled in the earth, because there will be nothing in the new earth and the new heaven that remains unreconciled to God. They are outside the final glorious new creation in another realm, in another dimension called the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which leaves me with one last question. And here again, I find this quite difficult, and so I'm proposing this interpretation not with any dogmatism that says there aren't any other valid interpretations. Making peace by the blood of his cross, how does that apply to demons and to Satan himself? Does it? He's making peace with all things, and the result is a, an earth and a heaven where all is reconciled by blood because peace was made. So here's my suggestion. I find a few verses later in chapter 2 this remarkable statement about demons who have infected heavenly places. Maybe I should show you that from Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual hosts of evil in the heavenly places. So somehow the heavenly places have to be purified in order for it to be true that there is a, a heaven and an earth where all is reconciled, because there are demonic forces that attack heaven and inhabit parts of heaven to this day, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12. So in what sense, then, does God make peace by the blood of the cross with such adversaries? Because they're certainly not redeemed. And here's what I think he says that gives us a clue in chapter 2, verse 13, 14, and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So on the cross, all the sins of those who are in Christ, those sins were canceled. The record was canceled. This he set aside. How did he cancel it? By nailing it to the cross. So your sins and my sins, if we are in Christ by faith, were nailed to the cross. And then he adds this remarkable statement. 
he disarmed, and I take him to mean that as my sins were nailed to the cross, as my record of debt was canceled, both of which nullify the accusing power of the devil, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, in other words, those things are, that are infecting the heavenly places and that wage war against the saints now, he disarmed them. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them. So he disarms, he shames, he triumphs. That doesn't look like salvation. It's not salvation. But it is disarming and, in a sense, and this is what's controversial about what I'm saying, in a sense, peacemaking. In other words, there are two ways that the blood of Christ frees the new heavens and the new earth from sin and adversaries. One is by forgiving sinners who repent, and the other is by stripping them, the demons, of their power to condemn by nailing the very thing to the cross with which they could condemn us, and so they are stripped of their power and ultimately cast out. So the cross, the blood, really did defeat the devil, and in that sense, peace holds sway in the new earth, in the new heaven, peace was really made because those who are not redeemed are excluded. They are cast into the outer darkness. So that's my attempt to understand how all things can be reconciled by being excluded if they're not penitent, and how even things that have been infecting heaven as demonic powers can be defeated by the blood of Christ, and that defeat be counted as the way peace was made in heaven and on earth. The righteous or the penitent being forgiven, and the demonic powers being disarmed, shamed, defeated, and finally excluded.